All right. Good morning once again. Kids, you are dismissed up to Grace Place. Go have some fun. We will miss you. We love you. We'll be praying for you. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for joining us this morning. If you're a guest with us, my name's Tim. I'm a pastor here at CF, and it is truly an honor and blessing that you would choose to worship with us this morning. Uh, Before we get going on the sermon, I do have some announcements for us. So uh, our community groups are running. They're alive. They're vibrant. They are where all of the good things, all the things we love about our church come together uh, in a really beautiful, sometimes messy kind of way. Um, So our groups meet once a week, variety of locations, some of them here, some of them in other neighborhoods, uh, with the goal of prayer, study, fellowship, and service. They are uh, designed to build community. We call them community groups for a reason. They are designed to get us engaging in one another's lives. And so if you haven't uh, jumped into one, we encourage you, we invite you, you are welcome to, to get connected. Even if it's just a one time, uh, our groups are built so that even if you just have one free Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or Saturday, because that's all the days we run groups, um, even if you just have one day, you're welcome to come and join us. The book that we're studying is one focused on building community within the church, but each chapter is kind of its own self-contained little world, so it doesn't matter what they read last week, you can come this week uh, and jump right in as well. So we'd love for you to get plugged in. Uh, there's information on the back table uh, and the chalkboard in the back, as well as online on our website, churchinroscovillage.org. You can get all the information there as well. We'd love to get you plugged in. Um, we have a, members cl- a membership class So we were going to do it this week. We're not. We're going to do it next week. So uh, if you forgot to sign up, you get another extra week. So that's a little bonus for you. So uh, we're going to be doing a membership class next week after church. If you are interested in becoming a member of CF or you're just interested in learning more about who we are, what uh, what we believe, why we do what we do, You're invited to stick around after the service. Lunch will be provided, and uh, you can hang out and learn more about CF. So, uh, But if you're going to to join that class, um, please let us know ahead of time. You can use the Connect cards that are in the seat backs around you, um, or you can send me an email, pastortimcf at gmail.com. Just let us know so we can plan for food and printouts and all that good stuff. Um, So please let us know. So that's next week after church. Uh, And then we started uh, this past Wednesday was the first uh, was Ash Wednesday, the first day of Lent, and so this is the first Sunday of Lent, so we are in this season as we walk toward and get closer and closer toward Easter celebration, um, and so as part of Lent, as a resource we've given you, there's a, there's a lot of different resources we have on our website, a bunch of links to a bunch of different uh, devotionals, as well as a couple of books that have been written on Lent that we found helpful, um, but in-house we have our own Lent devotional written by Amy Jacklone, um, focusing on the, sto- the prodigal son parable from Jesus in Luke 15. So uh, it is on the front table when you walked in the front door. Please grab one if you haven't grabbed one yet. There, uh, Each day it has us reading either part of the prodigal son story or an excerpt from uh, some theologian, pastor, somebody who has written and reflected on it. And then each day there's a little bit of a reflection uh, from Amy as well. And it's uh, very helpful, very encouraging, uh, a great resource that goes along with uh, what we're doing this year. So uh, it looks like this. I have so much stuff up here. Uh, It looks like this. So um, grab one. If you didn't grab one last week, you can grab one uh, on your way out this morning. Uh, And then the other announcement we have for you is we announced it last week. So if you weren't here, uh, we missed you. We're happy you're here this week. But if you weren't here last week, we announced that as Lent, uh, as part of Lent and moving forward, uh, we are committing ourselves as a church to praying for Roscoe Village. Um, And when I say pray for Roscoe Village, I mean uh, boots on the ground, We're going to walk through our neighborhood praying for every house, every apartment building, every business within Roscoe Village. And so, uh, Peter, you want to put that first map up? So this is 
Roscoe Village. Um, and then what I did uh, was I have a nice big version for us. S clip. Same concept. Um, <laughs> same concept. But uh, so this is going to go up on the wall in the back to help us keep track as we mark off different blocks, as we cover each block. We're going to uh, highlight each block and focus as we, uh, so we don't double and triple up. But this is going to help us kind of stay in tune and so that you know uh, what you can go and pray for. So we're going to be starting that uh, in the next week or so. Our community group leaders um, are going to start, if you haven't already, community group leaders, uh, I'm just going to put this out here in public, I guess, uh, is start talking with your groups about what this looks like. So the plan is we're going to go in groups of twos and threes uh, to walk through our neighborhood. You're going to walk with someone else uh, and pray, just briefly pray for each house. Um, a, a quick prayer. We have a couple that we're writing up that we're going to make available to you. So if you feel overwhelmed by that concept, we have a couple, like I said, that we're going to make available to you. Uh, you're going to pray briefly uh, with someone else for that house, and then you're going to go up to their door, and you're going to leave one of these shiny-looking uh, door hangers on their door, um, and, which just invites them to church and tells them that we're praying for them, and then you're going to move right along to the next house, rinse and repeat a bunch of times. Um, and so Roscoe Village is big. I say it's sneaky big. Uh, and so we're going to focus our efforts on, uh, we're going to kind of break up Roscoe Village into a couple of different pieces. So Peter, can you put the next one up? There should be another slide, Peter. There we go. So that's a focus version. So uh, the, the street to on your left uh, is Hoyne. And then we're going to go from Hoyne all the way to the railroad tracks, uh, Ravenswood. And then the top of the projector would be Addison. And the bottom, you can see Newport on the bottom. Uh, and then we're going to also include Roscoe on the bottom. So we're going Roscoe to Addison, Hoyne to uh, the railroad tracks to start. So this is where we're going to focus our attention and work in the beginning, once we get this section covered, um, it's kind of like a video game. Then we'll unlock a new part of the map, and we'll uh, go into the next part of the map. So that's where we're going to be focusing. Uh, so like I said, community group leaders, start planning with your groups. Uh, and then we're going to also have, in the next couple of weeks, a couple of opportunities where we as a community will get together. We'll start together here at the building, and then we'll break off into sections to kind of cover some ground, and then we'll come back together. And then we have a few other ideas on ways to make this fun and engaging um, but the hope is that as time goes on, uh, you are able to kind of do this. We're all adults. You can do this on your own time. If you have a friend, you got some time, you guys can meet together um, and grab some door hangers and then go uh, and, and pray for the neighborhood on, as your schedule allows. Um, you're just going to need to communicate with me so that we know who's going where, what, when, why. So that is what we are uh, focusing on and really uh, putting a lot of time and energy not only for Lent, but also moving forward. Because like I said, Roscoe Village is sneaky big. I'm really excited. I think that this is an opportunity for us to grow, um, as I said last week, as individuals, as a community. I think uh, when people pray, when God's people spend time praying, uh, fruit happens. Growth happens. Things happen. And so um, I'm excited to see what God's going to do. And we might not, as we talked about last week, we might not see immediately or at any time soon what God is doing in the midst of this, but we know that God answers prayers and we know that God produces fruit when his people are faithful. And so uh, that's something that we're going to pursue together. So I'm excited. If you have any questions on that, we're putting together a document, kind of a FAQ document. We will get to you next week and get online. Um, but if you have any questions, ideas, any of those kind of things, please bring them my way. I'd love for you to help me out with this. So... Um, that is it for announcements. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Galatians chapter 6. Uh, and that is the last time I'm going to say that for a while because today we are going to be finishing up 
our series in Galatians. We've come to the end of our study in the book of Galatians. There should be a Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a Bible in a seat back in front of you or in the chair you're sitting in. Um, And if you go to Galatians, what you want to do is you want to open up right in the middle of the book. It'll be Psalms, and you're way off. You're going to go way to your right um, past the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Keep going. You're going to find your way to Galatians. I think it's in the 900-ish range in the Seatback Bibles. Don't quote me on that, but it's like 960-something-ish. 975. Oh, man, I was close. 975 in the Seatback Bibles. Um, So we're going to be closing out this study in Galatians. We've been in Galatians for the better part of six months, uh, on and off here. For the better part of six months, we've been studying this letter. And I hope that this time in this book has been an encouragement and even a challenge for you. It has been for me. And I hope that really one of the things that we made a, made a, a big emphasis on as we've studied this book is that we were reading a chapter every day. Monday through Saturday, we were reading a chapter of Galatians every day. And I hope that that practice uh, helped you. I hope it helped you in, in studying Galatians and really putting it in your head and putting it in your heart um, and brought it alive to you maybe in a new way. And I hope really what it also did is it helped you realize I can get in the Bible and I can read it. And I can put in the three to four to five to seven minutes that it takes to get through a chapter uh, and let the Word of God just kind of bounce around in my head and my heart. And hopefully it made it a little more accessible to you to help you realize that uh, you can be in Scripture um, and, and engage with it on your own. And so, and I hope that was a, a life-giving reality that you um, came to and, so, uh, and something you can continue as you study the Word of God for yourself. So, um, you know, in public speaking, when you take a public speaking class, or you learn about public speaking, the, the, the standard uh, outline that people give you is they say, um, you know, tell them what you're going to tell them, and then you tell them, and then you tell them what you just told them, right? That's kind of the standard of when you're giving a speech or a sermon. Uh, and that's really what Paul has done for us in this letter. Way back in September, we saw in Galatians 1, uh, verse 6, it says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. He sets up right at the jump, way back in Galatians 1, he set up right from the jump and said, I can't believe you have fallen away. You were following the gospel. You understood, you heard the message that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came to die for your sins. You believed it, you put your faith in it, you walked in it, and now there's this other message that is distracting you. This distorted version of the gospel that isn't a gospel at all. It's this distorted other message. And from this warning and from this statement from Paul way back in Galatians 1, he spends much of this letter waging a war against the false teachers who were preaching a false message about the gospel and even about Paul himself. And so throughout this letter, Paul has appealed to the people in a variety of different ways. His tone has gone from soft and gentle as the older brother, the older father figure to, to, to his kids, to strict and stern because of the seriousness of the situation to even a befuddled, I don't understand what you're doing here. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? But his hope and desire throughout this whole letter is for the people. That, that hope and desire for the people has never wavered. His hope and desire for them and for us is that we would come to realize that there is life found in the person and work of Jesus and him alone. He cared for these Christians. He cared for these people and wanted them to persevere and see the goodness of God that is found through the gospel. 
And so now here, as he closes out this letter, he uses his final words to tell the people what he's already told them and to make one last stand against these false teachers and one last appeal to the people that they may be found not under the law, but rather under the grace and promise of God. And so that's what we're going to close out this morning with. So I'm going to pray and then we will jump into Galatians 6. Uh, Please bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, for this opportunity to gather together to celebrate you, to enjoy worshiping you. Lord, we lift up uh, Grace Place, we lift up the the kids of our church and the leaders of Grace Place that you would um, inspire them, be with them, uh, encourage those kids as they learn about you, as they learn about who you are and uh, the love you have for them. Lord, we pray that you would save the uh, those kids, that you would save the children of this church, that, this, uh, that they might walk with you for many, many generations. Um, God, we thank you for the leaders of Grace Place, for them putting in the time and energy and love to care for uh, the children of CF. Um, God, we ask that as we jump into this letter for uh, the last time in this series, God, you have done a work in us, in our hearts, in our heads, uh, even in our relationships, by and through this letter that Paul wrote to these churches in Galatia. And so, Lord, we ask that you do that one more time for us today, that as we close out this letter, that, um, Lord, we know that you have a word for us today. You have a message for us today. There's a reason we are here today. There is no luck. There is no happenstance. There is no coincidence. You are in control of all things all the time. And so you have us this morning here today in this part of the scripture because you have something for each of us individually. And so, God, I pray that you would give us all eyes to see and give us ears to hear. Give us minds to comprehend. Give us hearts to believe. And give us hands and feet to respond to the word that you have for us today. Lord, as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to read through uh, this ending of this letter, and then we will go back and talk through it. So we're going to start in verse uh, 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ, of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one, no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. So starting in verse 11, we see, you know, it was customary at that time for uh, when you're writing a letter like this to use uh, a scribe to write letters. We know Paul did this often, sometimes because he was chained to walls and he couldn't literally get the pen to the paper because he was stuck on a wall. But he uses scribes often, um, and that's how he worked. But And then usually at the end of a letter, he would uh, write kind of at the end, he would write the, the closing of the letter partially as a way to um, validate that it was him writing it, but also to give it kind of a personal touch. 
Uh, and so he says here, he takes the pen from the scribe, whoever it was that was helping him write this letter, he takes the pen from the scribe and he writes these final words to the churches in Galatia. And he does so with large block letters. Now some think this might be tied to his poor eyesight. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago that Paul probably had, it seems that Paul had some kind of eyesight issue, some kind of disease. And so some think that he's writing and he talks about these big, large letters because his eyesight was so bad, he had to write in large letters so he could see what he was writing. Uh, But many also, when you actually look at the content of these final few verses of this letter, many also think that he's writing this way here as really as an emphasis. He's emphasizing a point. It's kind of like if you're sending a text or an email and something's real important and you put it all in caps and like lots of exclamation parts and points and no emojis, like this is serious, pay attention. That's kind of what Paul's got going on here. Paul is going to close out this letter Uh, summarizing basically everything that he's written to the Galatians. And the issue at hand that he's been addressing throughout this letter over and over again because it's important and valuable and he knows the stakes are too high to not once again take final, go after those false teachers that were infiltrating the church. And so we see in verse 12 and 13, it says, he says, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in the flesh. These false teachers' motives were merely outward. That's what he means by saying they want to have a good showing in the flesh. They want to be seen and perceived a certain way. Their whole motivation has to do with what people think of them. And what he's been talking about throughout this letter is the idea of circumcision, that these false teachers, these false Judaizers have come into the church and said that if you want to truly be a Christian, you want to truly be a follower of God, in order to do that, yeah, put your faith in Jesus, but you also need to adhere to the law of Moses. And he says they are forcing this mandate of circumcision. Some translations you might, have, you might see, if you're not using a seatback Bible, it might say compel. It is the idea of adding a requirement to salvation. And that is what so, is so dangerous and deadly that has led Paul to write this letter and seemingly repeat himself over and over again. See, there's nothing wrong with the Gentile believers wanting to be circumcised. If they want to be circumcised, go ahead and be circumcised. In the same way that for many of the Jewish believers, after they became Christians, many of them maintained much of their Jewish traditions. We see even in Acts, even the apostles, even the disciples, that uh, even in the early, early words, uh, early days of uh, the book of Acts, you see the disciples on their way to temple for one of their hourly prayer times that the Jewish people would do throughout the day. There were certain times where you could go to temple and everyone would gather together. Many of the disciples even continued with Jewish traditions and practices. There's nothing wrong with those things. Traditions aren't bad, but when you put too much emphasis on them, that's when you get into trouble. When you start to believe that these things, these rituals, these things that you can do, that you are accomplishing, somehow have an effect on your salvation, that's where things get messy. And here Paul is talking about the, these Jewish leaders are forcing or compelling the people to get circumcised. For the one doing the forcing, for these false leaders, they are teaching a false perverted gospel that if any, anyone would believe it would condemn them to hell and they themselves are leading others into hell thinking they're doing the right thing, thinking that they are, do, they are in line with what God wants them to be doing. It's so easy to get blindsided and consumed with I'm right, everybody else is wrong and not have a humble enough heart as we've talked about throughout this letter to be able to hear from others, to hear from community and to hear from God's word itself. They have missed the mark. They have added to the gospel and created this false other message. 
And for those who would hear that message and would believe it, the ones accepting it and believing this lie, they are choosing, instead of the grace and mercy of the cross, they are choosing a tyrannical system that shackles them to a perpetual pursuit of a works-based holiness that's unattainable. The motives driving these false teachers comes in two forms. It's a, a fear of man and a pursuit of man's affections. We see the fear of man part in verse 12, in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. These false teachers were preaching a message that from a distance, at a glance, seemed to be good. They preached Christ. They preached Christ and him crucified. They proclaimed that faith in Jesus was important, even essential, but they preached that faith in Jesus got you 95% of the way there. But there was still work that you needed to do. Again, namely circumcision, which in reality it's not even about circumcision. It's about an adherence to the law of Moses and basically becoming a Jew. They would say, yes, faith in Jesus is good and needed, but you also need to do some work on your own to truly be accepted by God as his child. Paul states that this pushing of their false agenda is tied to the desire to not be persecuted for the cross. To not rock the boat, don't ruffle feathers, don't offend anybody, stay in your own lane. The problem is that the gospel is offensive. The cross is offensive. It is a polarizing reality that you cannot merely be indifferent to when you understand the facts regarding that Jesus claimed to be God himself and he was publicly executed and tortured and then rose from the dead. And his followers, and we still today, believe that and put our faith in that. And thousands upon thousands upon thousands for generations have died believing and claiming those words. You can't just be indifferent to that reality. The gospel of Jesus is offensive to a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. Tim Keller says that the gospel is offensive uh, to those on the left, to the liberal-minded people, because it states that the acceptance in the family of God is through Jesus and his cross alone, and that's intolerant. It's too limiting. It's too, uh, it's too restricting. But then on the other side, for the conservative people, the gospel is offensive because it says without the cross, good people are in just as much trouble as bad people. That it's not about your works, it's not about how nice and good you are. That without the cross, without faith in Christ, you're just as stuck as someone who's completely uh, amoral. So when you start preaching that it's through Jesus and him alone, through his life, his death, his resurrection, that salvation and forgiveness and right standing with God and true, actual, abundant life are found inevitably you are going to alienate yourself from the world and find yourself persecuted for the cross of Christ. These leaders preaching this false message don't want to lose their standing and authority with the other Jewish leaders, those in these communities that they've created for themselves. Because if you were a leader in those communities, you had your own little man-made kingdom. You were in control and you could convince, compel, and force people to follow your word without question or debate. And they certainly didn't want any trouble with Rome. Because the Romans were in charge at the time. And so by preaching faith in Jesus plus an, adheren an adherence to Jewish law, what they were doing was aligning themselves just enough with the government-sanctioned Jewish religion that they'd catch no heat from those in control. See, when the fear of man is your motivator, you're going to say and do whatever you think you must to obtain and maintain the status quo. Go along to get along. 
I don't want to cause any trouble. I don't want to offend. I don't want to disrupt anyone or anything. But Jesus and his public government-sanctioned execution on a torture device disrupts everything. It disrupts the notion that I'm good enough on my own to have a right standing with God. Because if that were true, if I could win, earn, do something to make my right standing with God happen, then Jesus doesn't have to die. But he did. He did die. And he needed to in order that we could live under grace and not under the law and not under our works and not under faith of others on our behalf, but under grace. God's unearned favor and merit, getting what we don't deserve, that's grace. And that's a gift that we might have a right relationship with him through faith in Christ. The gospel disrupts the idea that there is some specific formula or combination of experience, personality, and ability that makes what a Christian is supposed to be. And that frees us. That frees us to celebrate and encourage and rejoice in one another and the strengths and victories that we see in one another. Not compare one another, not get jealous and envious of one another, but celebrate each other. We don't have to compare and contrast and judge ourselves to each other, but rather we can enjoy what God is doing in our midst because the gospel frees us from having to try and compete with each other to see who's the holiest. Fear of man is a motivator. It is limiting and controlling, and it's exhausting. Constantly having to put on the right face, constantly trying to do and say and be what you think everybody wants you to do and say and be. But the the pursuit of the praises of man are no better. You see in verse 13 where he talks about they want to be able to boast in your flesh. These false leaders wanted trophies on the shelves. And those trophies are the people who they have conned and manipulated into following this bizarro brand of religion that they've come up with. They want the applause and the accolades that comes with success. For them, they want the respect and honor that Pharisees and rabbis received in those days. And at the heart of it is a soul crying out, look at me, look at all I've done, look at all I've accomplished, look how impressive I am. And it's just as prevalent in our world today. Think about social media. Never mind the filters that make whatever picture you're looking at that I just posted perfect. Let's ignore the before and after of this one still shot and the chaos and ugliness that's found in the before and after. No, focus right here on this perfect manipulated image. This distorted fake reality I have selected and handcrafted to share with you so that you might think a little bit better of me and throw me some likes. False teachers wanted to be able to show off how influential they were, how much impact they had made, and wanted the applause for all their hard work. Look at how many people follow us. Look at how many people listen to us. Look at the numbers. Look at the influence we have. Look at all our hard work. The hard work of convincing people to put themselves under the law. The hard work of convincing people that they could find happiness and joy and satisfaction and fulfillment in the form of a legalistic living under the law. The irony, of course, being that they themselves couldn't do what they were calling others to do. They were calling people to live under this law, but we've already said the law itself tells you if you're going to try and justify, put yourself under the law, try and justify yourself under with the law, then you have to use all of the law. 
You have to maintain it perfectly all the time. And from the jump right out of the box, we are rebellious against God and we can't do it. We've been sinning since we entered into humanity. And so even before you have this idea that I want to try and follow and keep perfectly, you have already sinned so many times over, you have already wrecked that chance. And yet they claimed and they preached, get circumcised, get under the law, check those spiritual boxes, be nice, be helpful, go to church, read your Bible, give some money, don't swear, at least not out loud. You're in control of your spirituality and your right standing with God. You can do it. You can climb that mountain. You can achieve it if you believe it. Just try harder. Just do better. Call right now for four easy payments of $19.95 and you too can be as happy as me. When your religion and your belief system is so focused on the outward actions, while it might bring you some pride when you have somebody actually acknowledge you and, and give you some kind of kudos It might boost your ego. It might make you popular. It will never deliver to you the abundant and eternal life that the grace of God is offering. It can't. It's a broken mirage. The law was never made to save. We have within us a sin nature, a flesh that has been rebelling against its creator from the beginning. No amount of being nice, trying hard, thinking happy thoughts can change our standing with God. The gospel proclaims an inward-out transformation. We are changed on the inside by grace through faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that reality, that new life that we receive, it changes and affects our outward behavior. We live into response to the grace and the love and the mercy and the joy and the acceptance and the forgiveness that we have received from God, and so we live in response to that. Works righteousness is all about outward appearance. Putting on the show, say the right things, doing the right things, convincing others we all have it together, convincing ourselves that we all have it together, and trying but failing to convince God that we have it all together. It never gets to the heart. It never allows for us real, actual life change because we're too busy performing. We're too busy pursuing the next task. We're too busy trying to check the next box. We never stop to see just how tired and unfulfilled we truly are. We've asked this question multiple times as we studied the book of Galatians. What's your why? Why do you do the things that you do? Why'd you post that picture online? Why'd you make that comment at dinner? Why'd you volunteer to serve? Why did you decide to be helpful? Is it truly out of a selfless desire to lift others up and build them up and strengthen those around you? Or is there something deeper and darker happening? Is there a motivation in the back of your brain that it really it's, you're looking to be honored and celebrated for your accomplishments and your helpfulness? If what you do is driven by the approval of this world over and above God, you are a slave to this world, shackled to the likes and retweets and validation of others. And what happens when all those dry up? You'll no longer be able to get your dopamine fix from others and you'll have nothing left in yourself to boast in. These false teachers, they boast in themselves. They boast in what they've done in converting others. They hold their checklists up, proud for the world to see. Look at how great we are. Paul says, 
I'm going to boast in something else. I'm going to celebrate something else. He says in verse 14, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This verse, in that day, at that time, for us, we throw around the word crucified over and over again. We wear, and we wear crosses as jewelry and we get them tattooed on our bodies. For them, at that time, to talk about glorying, to talk about boasting and celebrating in a crucifixion, was completely countercultural to everybody, not just the Gentiles, not just the Romans, but everybody. Nobody thought crucifixion was good. It was disgusting and shameful and horrible. It was such a horrible way to die. The word crucifixion, this word crucify, was a word that had to get made up to be able to explain what was happening on that cross. Paul doesn't want to boast in power in riches, in authority, in wisdom, even in his standing as an apostle, his boasting, his celebrating, his rejoicing, these things will, the thing he revels in every chance he gets is the cross of Jesus Christ because it's there that redemption is found. It's there that hope is found, that new life and grace and mercy and full, abundant, satisfied life is found. He says he will boast in the cross and the new life found there because it is by the cross that the world has been crucified to him and he to the world. But when someone was crucified, as I said, it was when they, were, they would become rejected and scorned. It was shameful and grotesque. And that shame and that rejection trickled down to your family and friends. If you were connected to somebody that was crucified, you yourself became excluded from the community. You didn't talk about being crucified or people being crucified. In fact, Roman citizens didn't even use, some of them didn't even use the word crucified. They had to make up this word to define it, and that was even so bad that for most people, when they talked about crucifixions happening, there was a phrase they made up which translates and means hanged on an unlucky tree. That's what they would use. That's the idiom they would use to explain when someone was crucified, that they were hanged on an unlucky tree. That's how taboo and off-putting this was. And so when Paul says, I'm going to revel in this, I'm going to boast in this, I'm going to celebrate that Christ was crucified, it is a mind-boggling concept. And then he takes it a step further and says, not only am I going to celebrate in Jesus' crucifixion, but that, cruci- that reality has crucified me to the world and the world to me. The world has become for Paul someone, something he refuses to associate with. Obviously, he's still in the world, right? He's still living and engaging with it. We as Christians can't just seclude ourselves, right? We don't become Christians and then just hide from the world. It's quite the opposite. We are called to be the lights in the darkness. We are called to engage and be involved in the world. We don't just only interact with other Christians, only interact with church people because the world is too messy and dark. No, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul doesn't mean run and hide from the darkness. He is talking about, instead, the influence, the desires, the validation, all the trappings of the world that want to pull and distract and detour you from following Christ. He says, that's done for me. Paul's statement here is a reminder to those who are in Christ that who are under the promise of grace that the world has no power over you. There is nothing left in this world to boast in, nothing here to lay your foundation on and build your life and worldview on because it's all temporary sinking sand. There's nothing left here that has power to control you. If something is controlling you, it's because you're allowing it to because if you have put your faith in Christ, if you have the Holy Spirit, you are making a choice to pursue darkness. You're free. 
You're free and you are free even to enjoy and celebrate this world and this creation and even other people because no longer are we driven by fear and no longer are we driven by looking for the adoration and the attaboys of this world. We can live and enjoy this world instead of being dominated and crushed by it. Solomon, in his book, in Ecclesiastes, he talks about trying to find completeness and satisfaction anywhere he could. And he goes throughout this book and he says, I tried money, I tried sex, I tried power, I tried relationships, I even tried academics and study. And in the end, he says, all of it is vanity. All of it is useless and pointless because it all ends. And he closes that book with this. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Paul says in another way, in another letter he wrote in Philippians 3, he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. As John Piper said, Paul was so swallowed up by the love of Christ, that the benefits of this world look to him as cold and ashen as a crucified corpse. Everything here fails. Everything here falls. Everything here is temporary. We are temporary. Why are we trying so hard and doing so much to, and working so hard to get so much out of these 60, 70, 80, 90 years that we get here and so little to focus on the eternity before us? We put so much stock and effort in the stuff of this world, in the reputation of this world, in our experience in this world, when one day none of it will exist and you and I will be a faint faint whisper of a fraction of an idea in somebody else's head. And it's in this space that Paul and the world can actually agree on something. It's in this place that Paul and the world actually agree because they don't like each other much. He said, because of the cross, he is crucified to the world. He is rejected. He is scorned. He is a fool. Because the cross doesn't make any sense. The gospel isn't logical, and, Christians, and Christian living is ridiculous. And then Paul goes on, and he says, it's not about what you have done. This idea, this way of living is totally counter to what the world has to say. In verse 15, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. It's not about what you can do here. It's not about what you have done or haven't done. It's not about what you were going to do or not do. When it comes to your standing with God, your status as a child of God, your physical actions and inactions here do not count for anything. It's not that our lives don't matter. But when we're talking about our standing with God, our relationship to him, what matters is whether or not you have been made new by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Only being a new creation. Scripture is clear on its essential nature. Paul said it a couple of chapters ago in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
He says it another way in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Jesus says it in John 3.3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. And lastly, in Romans 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him, Jesus, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Here is what matters. Here is what holds value and worth. It isn't about you and your abilities and actions, but about the grace and mercy and love of God poured out for you. And this concept, this world cannot get their eyes and minds and hearts around because everything about the kingdom of God is counter to what this world values and endorses. That self-reliant, independent, results-driven, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, do what you got to do to get ahead, strive until you collapse notion of what living means is flawed, exhausting, and a mirage of lies and empty promises. When you have truly experienced, truly known the grace and mercy of Jesus, all the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Because you're a new creation. You have new hope. You have new desires. You have new longings. You have a new identity as an adopted, redeemed, loved, and accepted child of God. And with that new creation, with that new identity, comes with it an outflowing of this identity. It affects how we live. It filters every decision. It changes us from when we open our eyes in the morning to when we close them at night. It changes everything about us. Verse 16, Paul says, As for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. You might read that and say, Whoa, what rule? We just spent six months saying the rules don't matter. I thought the whole point of that was that the rules aren't supposed to drive us. What rule? What's he been saying since Paul grabbed this pen out of the scribe's hand? There are those who live selfishly, trying to fulfill and gratify their flesh by boasting in themselves and their actions. But for the person who knows, who has experienced, who has tasted and seen, they know the only boasting that is worth anything is boasting in Christ. Because actions, rituals, they don't matter. All that matters is if you are a new creation. And if you are a new creation, then the next step is that you live different because you have been made new. Your old desires are gone. He talked about it in chapter 5 multiple times. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love and mercy. This rule for this new creation is the same one it's been. Love God, love people. So walk by this, walk in this. And as you do, Paul says, you will find peace and mercy and will truly be living as one who is a child of God. And so he closes out with these final two verses. In verse 17, he says, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Let no one cause me trouble. Basically he's saying, quit bugging me with this stuff. (laughs) To a degree. He says, this, this conversation is over when it comes especially to Paul and his standing, not the works righteousness stuff. He's going to preach that message until he goes home. 
But when it comes to, hey, Paul's preaching a different gospel, because that's what the false leaders were doing. They were trying to undermine his character, undermine his reputation by saying he's preaching something else. He's not preaching what Jesus preached. Paul says, let no one give me trouble about this. I've suffered enough. You can go to 2 Corinthians 11 on your own time and you can read about it. It lays out much of the suffering Paul went through throughout his ministry. He was beaten and tortured. He shipwrecked. He snake-bitten. He spends most of his life, Lord willing, uh, this year we're going to study the book of Acts. And when we get to looking at Paul, he spends most of that book running from town to town, being chased by angry mobs who want to kill him because of the gospel. He's carried with him the markings and brandings of one who suffered and endured for the name of Jesus. He had the scars to prove his faith in the cross. But again, he shares that fact, not to boast in himself, oh, look at me and how holy I am, look at the scars I have acquired. But rather, he shares that to say, look, no one can ever claim that I wavered from the gospel, that I ever changed my tune or played nice or just wanted to get by and not offend anyone. I was saved by Christ and I stayed true to my faith no matter what. He preached Christ and him crucified and he earned the scars on his body for his faithfulness to the gospel. Can we say the same? When you are put in a position to stand up and endure for the gospel, have you? Will you? And he finally wraps up this letter in verse 18 with the thing that he's been proclaiming this whole time. The driving force of this letter, the driving force of being a Christian, the driving force of the gospel, grace. The grace of Jesus, because there is no better benediction, no better prayer, no better hope, no better longing than for these people to know the grace of Jesus. Not just think about it, not just memorize verses about it, but truly know and experience the grace of Jesus. Because if you have, then the things of this world will lose their shine. The drive to be the greatest will lose its pull, the hope and longing for us, the way that we live into and experience this life we have been called to is by and through the grace of Jesus. It was grace that called us to God. It was grace that illuminated the message of the gospel to us that first time. It was grace that has continued to carry us through and continued to give us forgiveness even when we wandered, even when we strayed. It is grace that has called us back to him. And it is grace that will allow us to one day stand rightly justified, welcomed into the presence of God for all eternity. It's not our actions. It's not our abilities. It is by and through grace and that alone. And so I echo the words of the Apostle Paul and pray that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits, brothers and sisters. Because our right standing with God comes by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. How we thank you for inspiring Paul to write this letter. We thank you for um, its importance and its endurance to uh, last and become part of the, your word to us. And we know that your word is living and active, that this letter matters just as much in 2022 in Chicago to us as it did when it was first penned by the scribe and by Paul. And so, God, we ask that though we're done studying it on a Sunday, that we don't forget or neglect the realities and the truths, that we would come back to this over and over, that we would 
be reminded over and over that we are justified, we are made right with you by grace through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Lord, I pray that if anyone here, if anyone hears this, doesn't know you, that you would remove whatever walls, whatever barriers, whatever things are holding them back from having a relationship with you, that right now in this moment that you would be opening their eyes, that you would be softening their hearts so that they might come to be welcomed into the family of God, be adopted in as your son or daughter. God, this letter was full of reminders of, for many of us, for those of us who grew up in the church, it's stuff we know. It's truths that we know. But it's truths that we forget and we fail to live out. It's realities. It's our reality that we fail to live into. Oh God, that we might be a people who are regularly reminded that of our identity as your children and live in light of that. That we would truly live that outward, that inward out transformation that the gospel calls us to. That we, being changed, having experienced your love and grace and mercy, God, help us to be a people that show love and grace and mercy. God, when we hear messages, when we hear voices and and those who want to distract us and distort and change and modify the gospel, who want to make it about whatever current affair is happening, who want to make it about whatever other thing that it is and and try and change it and morph it for their own gain, Lord, help us to stay true, help us to stay connected to what the gospel actually is, the good news that your son came to die for us and free us from, yes, the wrath of God, but also to be a blessing to others, that it affects and changes us now and here. God, as we go forward, help us to live into this grace that you have called us to. Help us to remember and reflect on and rest in this grace you have given us. We thank you and we praise you. Amen.